It's been a long time now, almost four decades, but I still remember the moment. My face was sore from smiling. <laughs> I'm serious. My heart was beating like I'd just run around the block, but I was just standing there still, trying to stand and not fall, crumble, waiting. Then the music announced her arrival. The doors at the back of the Milton Church opened, and I catch and I caught a glimpse of beauty. And every head turned, necks craned, guests rose in unison, and there my bride at her father's arm, she too smiling, glowing, beautiful. The Bible uses a lot of words to describe the church, but I can't help but feel that this is one of the most compelling. It talks about the church as the, as the family of God. It talks about the church as the body of Christ. It talks about the church as the people of God, as, as ambassadors. And we're going to cover all those in the weeks to come in this series that we're doing on the church. And each one of these are packed with important nuances about the church, but one of them just seems the most striking of all. It helps us see not only God's purpose for the church, but also the depth of his love, the height of his commitment. God views the church like his bride. Like his bride. Last week we started this series, it will be six weeks together, and we looked closely at the Greek word used in the New Testament for church, ekklesia, as you remember it. The Greek word is actually a compound word, ek, meaning out, and kaleo means call or summon. So that's where we get the idea the church is a group that's called out. The called out people of God, those who have said yes to Jesus Christ and his saving grace, and together carry his good news to the world, telling them about his glorious soon return, ecclesia. As I mentioned last week, <clears throat> this COVID crisis and our subsequent health protocol has caused me to give a lot of thought to everything, but in particular, the church. What are we? Who are we? We've had to adjust things here at Village Church. Our campus activities have been largely curtailed, but the ecclesia, the church of God, is alive and well. I'm glad you're here this morning, and if you're watching via Blue Mountain TV or live streaming, thank you for being with us as well. But the church, like we said last week, isn't a place. The church is not this spot right here. It's not an institution. The church is not a meeting it's never spoken of as such in the Bible. It's never a building. It's never spoken of as a territory. The church is a movement. It's a movement. It's a faith-filled, called out, divinely inspired, mission-directed people of God. And 
as foundational as that picture is of ecclesia. The nature of the church is far too broad to just be summarized in that one word, in those few thoughts. And one of the most compelling pictures, one of the most compelling metaphors used in Scripture of the church is the one we want to talk about this morning. Church is God's bride. God's pursuit of His bride started long before the New Testament. It started really with Adam and Eve. It started with Seth and Noah and Abraham. He, God, invited them into a relationship, a relationship of promise, of, of faithful care. Moses talked about that, that covenant relationship in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, where he said, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to thousand generations, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Of course, of course, God asked his bride to be faithful to him as well as he would be to them. He asked them to consecrate themselves to him and to serve him only. But you know the story. God's bride constantly broke her vows. God's bride constantly walked away from her marriage. She shacked up with other gods. She ran after other interests. But in every betrayal, God was faithful. He remained faithful. He never broke his promise. He never did. The prophet Isaiah wrote during this uh, a particular brutal and bad era when Israel had betrayed her vows and prostituted herself to other gods and rebelliously spurned God's love and care. And they were about to be conquered and destroyed by a powerful invading armies. At this time, at this time, the Spirit of God gave Isaiah a picture of God's hope, God's hope for restoration. This is what he said, Isaiah 54, 5 and 6. For your master is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called, he's called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you re- were refused, says your God. Now just think of that imagery for a moment. The powerful picture. A little bit later, God uses faithful Hosea to portray his message with Israel and his marriage to them. God instructs them. God instructed Hosea, marry a prostitute, have children with this prostitute, and this prostitute returned to her prostitution. But again and again, Hosea was told to rescue her from her whoredom again and again. This is God and his church. That's who God is. That's the way he loves and cares for his bride. God looks at the church. God looks at his called out assembly like a husband looks at his wife. In that day, it says, Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, in that day declares the Lord, you'll call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. And I'd like to have you just think of that for a moment. Think of the difference between master and husband. 
and then put God into that mix. What kind of image does that conjure up in your mind? A master, okay? A master controls and forces, demands and by strength and position. But a husband, a husband inspires with faithful love and commitment and loyalty. God doesn't want a slave-master relationship with you, with me. He doesn't want us to obey because we have to, because we feel like we're forced to, or because we fear the consequences if we, if we don't. That's not why He wants us, the way He wants us to obey. He wants an obedience, yes, but one motivated by love. When obedience is merely duty, it quickly becomes drudgery. God wants us to relate to him with, a, with an obedience that's fueled by love and honor, by compassion, not fear. He wants our relationship with him to be built on loyalty and faithfulness, not just blind adherence to some rules. God wants a bride. He doesn't want a slave. He wants a bride. Hosea 2, verse 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me, says the Lord. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Here, Hosea pictures God's faithfulness. God pursues his people with a relentless passion. We may rebelliously break away, but God has a way. God wins us back. And that plan, that way, is ultimately Jesus. With God's incarnation in Jesus Christ, with Jesus' death for us on the cross, with his resurrection and victory over death, and his ministry in our behalf now in heaven, Jesus became the living embodiment of the bridegroom. He's the faithful husband. He's the husband willing to give up his life for his bride. The church, the one he loves. That's why Paul says to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, I am jealous for you with a, jeal- with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now just think, ruminate on that verse for a moment. Through Christ's sacrifice, through his life given in atonement, self-centered, God-forsaking, self-promoting, wayward human beings like me, like you, were transformed into a a beautiful, pure, white wedding-dressed bride. I know it's hard to imagine that looking at me right now, but that's that's what we are, aren't we? It's a stretch, but I'm a bride. You're a bride. We together. That's what we are, the ecclesia of God, his beloved. What does that one word, bride, What does that one word tell us about the nature of God's love 
for the church. And what does it tell us about the nature of the church's love for God? That's what we want to talk about. That's what Ephesians 5 talks about. And you've heard this passage, the passage Terry read, and you have heard on a number of occasions when families come together for a wedding ceremony. It's a compelling picture, isn't it, from Ephesians of a marriage relationship. But these verses don't merely talk about marriage. They talk about Jesus' relationship with his church and how he chooses to relate to us. So as we look at those verses again, instead of focusing on the husband's relationship to the wife, I'd like you to think about what those verses tell us about Jesus' relationship with you. Let's look at them together, okay? Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 25 to 32. Here we go. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So tell me, friend, tell me, how much does Christ love his church? How much does he love his church? He loves us so much that he gave himself for us. He gave up his life. He laid down his, his very life so that he could bring us back from sin and death. Christ loves his church so much. And it's not a flighty love. It's a tender and patient love. Christ's love for his church is not a, a fickle love. It's a committed love. He intercedes for us constantly. Before the Father, He nourishes us. He cherishes us. He sustains us. He protects us. Christ's love for us was not a mere affection. Christ's love for us was missional. He gave Himself. He gave Himself for her to make her holy, to make you holy, to make me holy. Christ's love is a cleansing love. It's a purifying love. It's a redeeming love. His love for his church is a restoring love. Like that children's chorus says, like we used to sing, he washes me clean and he irons out the wrinkles. That's what he does for us. His banner over me is love. The bridegroom's love is a bride-centered love, not a him-centered love. That's Jesus' love for us. A husband's love cherishes his wife as he does his own body. That's what Paul says. And so to Christ, how did he cherish his bride? He gave himself. He cares for his church like he cares for his own body, supplying her every need 
for her good, for her prosperity and health. And then Paul includes in this description the Genesis narrative of the beginning of marriage where he says the two shall become one flesh. Paul includes that. And then he says, but I'm talking about the church. I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about the bridegroom Christ and his church, followers of Jesus. He's diving deep, much deeper than we can even imagine. He's speaking about Christ's complete identification with his church, with his people. Essentially, as I see it, what Paul is saying is that human romance and pursuit, the promise of that underlying love between a man and a woman is an object lesson of God's intense love for his church. That's what Paul is saying. You have that feeling among yourselves. That's the way God loves you in Jesus Christ. That love that brings a man and a woman together to the altar, Paul is saying, is just a faint glimmer, a faint glimmer of Christ's love for his church and what he would do for his church. Even if you've never studied the Bible, even if you know nothing about Scripture, you've heard echoes in your own heart of this love, this amazing love that has pulled your heart at one time or another, even now throughout your life. And every true love story that we've heard or that we've been experienced in has hinted at that love. Every groom weakened at the sight of his beloved has whispered, that love of God for his church. Every faithful, committed, loving marriage relationship has pointed to that love, God's love for his church. Each imperfect echo of a perfect love song in heaven, a perfect love song that God has for us. The love of Christ The love of Jesus for his bride goes far beyond what we can even imagine and experience in marriage. Never has a husband, never has a husband loved his wife the way Christ loves his church. Never. A man selects, a man calls, and only the fairest survive. But Jesus didn't love that way. He's not directed by uh, someone worthy of his love. But like Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, that's when God loves us. While we were still in no position to love him. As one Bible scholar put it, I like the way he said it, Christ loved the church not because it was perfectly lovable, but in order to make it such. That's what Christ did. That's what God did. You see, it's kind of interesting. In Bible times, it was customary for the groom to give something of his wealth to the father or brother of the bride. That's the way it was done. Think of it. As creator of the world, what could God have given his bride? Everything was at his disposal. 
He had made everything. He could give anything. Christ could have given wealth without end, but he didn't. Instead, he gave the best. He gave himself. He gave himself. This is the love that creates the church. This is the love that draws his bride. And by the way, there was no initial love on the part of Christ's bride at the beginning. She wasn't looking at him with love, but it was his love for her that drew her to him. I like the way that the Apostle John said it in 1 John 4, verse 9. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. That's the truth of the matter. God's love for, for us. There's only one appropriate response to this kind of love. This kind of love for us. There's only one kind, and that is a single-hearted commitment. Absolute faithfulness. Unqualified devotion. That's the only thing that is suitable to return. There's, that's the only thing we can really give. But there's one final There's one final point of divine marriage, of God with us, of God pursuing us. In biblical times, when marriage happened, it occurred in three stages. The first came the engagement. Now, back in those days, engagement was more than just a promise. Engagement was the real deal. It was the beginning of marriage. The bride and groom were considered legally bound together, legally married. But then came the the day of the actual marriage ceremony and the the bridegroom and his friends would travel to the bride's home. And then together, the bridegroom's friends would gather the bride and her friends and the whole group paraded then to the newlywed's new home. That's the way it was done. They paraded together to the newlyweds' new home, and that is what we are waiting for with Christ today. We are waiting the Savior's coming to take us home. That's what we're waiting for. That's what Paul says when he talks about it in in Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and we will be taken to be with him. That is the great gathering for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now back in the day, back in the day, in Jesus' day, when the bride and groom arrived at their future home, the actual marriage ceremony took place. And there was quite a fanfare that would occur. And then the wedding feast began. And it may, may last for days. Revelation talks about this same thing when John refers to the moment when the bridegroom meets his bride. Revelation chapter 19 of verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Christ and his bride. The church and God together, intimately, forever together. Sharing the great end of time, the new beginning banquet together and celebrate the joy, the joy of perfect fellowship together. Jesus loves the church. 
Jesus loves the church. Shouldn't we love the church too? I know. I know it's, it's difficult at times because the church really is not lovely at times. When you think of the church, you don't think of a beautiful bride, do you? No. You think of a building. You think of a bickering denomination. You think of a fraudulent pastor. You think of some embarrassing scandal that hits the news. That's what you think of when you think of the church. When you think of the church, you think of long, tedious services. You think of too many responsibilities. That's what you think of when you think of the church. But you know, all that would change if we thought of the church the way that heaven really thinks of the church, the way that God thinks of the church. Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. The church is his bride, his bride. He's the only one, he's the only one with the right to disown or give up on the church. He alone, but he never has. And he never will. He never will. I remember years ago, a beloved member of Village Church passed away a number of years ago. Art Harms. Maybe some of you remember this stalwart, faithful person. I remember the first time I went to visit Art and his beloved bride, Ruth. They'd been married, I don't know, had to be almost seven decades, almost seven decades. And when he talked about his bride, his Ruth, you could just see that she was still the focus of his passion, his affection, and his heart. After almost 70 years, when he talked about his Ruth, you know, when the Bible talks about the church, it makes even Art's affection for his Ruth seem small. God's affection for his church, despite our missteps, despite our mistakes, despite our sins, despite our misaffections and our imperfections, he loves the church. I really love the way that Ellen White speaks of God's affection for his bride. This is what she says in Acts of the Apostles. Enfeebled and defective as it may appear, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. The one object. It is the theater of his grace. What is? The church. The theater of his grace in which he delights to revel his power to transform hearts. That's the church, friend. That's the church. Jesus is at work making the church this church, beautiful. He has in mind. He had you in mind. He had me in mind. He had that in mind when he died on the cross. And his passion hasn't dimmed since that time. Jesus still calls us his bride. And we should bear that title with honor and gratitude. A couple of weeks ago, I... I read the winsome story of a young man's crazy love 
for his beloved in a book by Bob Goff called Love Does. Now, Bob and his wife live uh, at a bayfront home and um, near the waterfront of, I don't know what body of water it is, but anyway, one day, there's a path that runs along the front of their property, and the many people walk along that path. One day, a young man came walking along the path, and he waved to Bob and his wife, and that wasn't unusual, so Bob and his wife both waved back, sitting on their porch, and, but this man, instead of stop, stopping his waving and moving on, he just stood there and kept waving, <laughs> Just stood there and kept waving at Bob and his wife. And Bob thought, well, maybe he wants to talk. So Bob got off his porch, walked down to him there at the waterfront along the path and introduced himself. And the man responded and he said, I'm Ryan and I'm in love. Then he got the nerve to ask what he came to ask. I walk by your house all the time. And I have this girlfriend. (laughs) He paused and he hemmed and he hawed and he stammered and finally asked, would it be all right? Would it be okay if I asked my girlfriend to marry me in your backyard? Bob was taken back. (laughs) He was amazed that this uh, love-glazed kid would walk into the backyard of a complete stranger, complete stranger, and asked to use the house the yard of the, for a great caper. <laughs> but that's the way love is, isn't it? That's the way love is. He wanted this girl, and he was going to do whatever he had to do to get her. <laughs> Ryan, said Bob, that sounds like a fantastic idea. And with that, Ryan, he, he really wasn't <laughs> expecting that. He said, really? <laughs> He was expecting a no or let me think about it or something like that. And he, Bob said, sure, sure, go get your, your girl and let's get this, let's get you engaged. He said, Ryan, Ryan left half skipping, half jumping, his feet hardly touching the path, leaving the home. He was strategic. He was audacious. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to get that girl. But he didn't stop there. A few days later, Ryan came by again. This time he asked Bob, Bob, would it be all right if we had a dinner on your back porch? (laughs) Before I popped the question, Bob said, sure. Another time he stopped by, Bob, would it be all right if I invited some friends to serve that dinner for me? How many friends? Bob said, 20, Ryan said. (laughs) Sure. A few days later, he stopped by again. Bob, would it be all right if you put some speakers out here on the porch and I just had a little dance with my bride before I asked the question? Sure, Bob said. (laughs) Sure, that'd be fine. And over the next few weeks, Ryan stopped by again and again and again with one after another bold, audacious, plan for his proposal. And Bob actually started to look forward to these visits. (laughs) He wondered when Ryan would be stopping by. He wondered how much fun this was going to be. Ryan had one final request. He stopped by and he said, Bob, do you have a boat? (laughs) 
can I borrow it? <laughs> he was out of control. He was out of control. He had no idea what an outrageous thing he was asking for. To Ryan, to Ryan, Bob was no stranger. No. No one was a stranger to Ryan. Everyone was involved. The whole world was full of friends when it came to winning his love. He was unaware or unimpeded by what proper was, by what acceptable was, by what conventional was, and his enthusiasm was contagious. When the big night came, everything was in place. Everything. Ryan and his girl came walking down the path. She had no idea, of course. They came walking down the path, and he led her up the stairs, across the lawn, onto the porch of a a candlelit porch. And the girl wondered and said, what are we doing? Kind of grabbed his arm a bit. Is it okay? Whose house is this? But Ryan just pulled the chair back and sat down his wood, his future bride. Dinner with 20 people serving was impeccable. The evening came. The after-dinner dance was endearing. And as the evening came to its natural end, Ryan took his beloved by the hand and headed back down toward the waterfront. And you wonder what was going through this young lady's head about now, huh? You wonder? As they got closer to the deck, which is behind the house, Ryan turned her toward the boat. And she said, what are we doing? (laughs) But he just said, come on. And they stepped onto Bob's boat, and Bob motored them into the bay to the prearranged spot where Ryan would pop the question. On shore, Ryan had 50 more of his friends, all holding candles, spelling out, Will you marry me? And the answer was immediate, enthusiastic, yes. And in this most special moment of their lives, neither Ryan nor his bride-to-be noticed that a Coast Guard firefighting boat pulled up behind them. Not even Ryan knew about this. This was Bob doing this. Bob had secretly arranged it. And at the thumb up, the sign that she said yes, the captain of that firefighting boat shot off every water cannon on board. It was was like New York Harbor on 4th of July. Ryan's love was audacious. It was crazy, wasn't it? But it was strategic. It was contagious. And I also have to say, it's just a bit, just a bit, only a bit of a reflection of the love that God has for his church. Do you suppose, do you suppose that the God of all creation thought about his creation as a gift for his bride? Do you suppose, do you suppose that the God of creation made those fields of flowers for his bride? 
Do you suppose, do you suppose that the canopy of trees that God made, that the flourishing of welcoming of animals, do you suppose that that was a way that he was going to demonstrate his love for his bride? Do you suppose, do you suppose that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, counseling together regarding their saving care that they would offer a world lost in rebellion, do you suppose that they, that they determined to engage a love so audacious, a love that never grows old, a love that is never completely finished finding its way to express itself in love and care? Do you suppose that God thought of that when he thought of you? I think so. And if this is so, and it is so, how, how should you and I think of the church, his bride? I have some questions for you. Take these home with you, would you? If this is so, if what we've talked about is true, then what attitude adjustments might be in order for you regarding the church? If this is so, if this is true, what we've talked about, what behavior adjustments might be in order for you regarding the church? If this is so, if this is true, how does this picture of the church as God's bride change your thinking about who God is?
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you. What can we say? Your love is amazing. It goes beyond our wildest imagination to think of your care, your interest, your concern, your regard for us, your church. Oh Lord, I just pray that that truth would so impact our lives that our own minds, our own relationship with you would be transformed and that we as a church here, village church, gathered, called out group would sense the importance, the joy and the fulfillment of living as your bride and how beautiful that is. Bless us to that end, I pray and thank you for your inspiration and transforming grace in Jesus' name. Amen.